0: Rules and restrictions may apply. Support for today's show comes from Shutterstock. You might know of Shutterstock as home to royalty-free photos, but they offer much more. Kickstart your next interactive project with video clips or music tracks from their collection. All of your creative needs serve to you in one place. For a limited time, Shutterstock is offering a 20% discount to take advantage head over to shutterstock.com/spp that's shutterstock.com/spp and now on to the episode
1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, as always. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited because of the episode you're about to listen to. Look, I love all our episodes. I love a lot of topics, but sometimes I feel like I get too much into the weeds, right? Too heady, too much thought, you know, psychology and brain science and the world ending, and all these things. And so this week, it was great to have on somebody who was transporting me to somewhere else. Someone whose stories were exciting and whose book was a page-turner, I have to admit. This week on the show, we have Brett Velikovich. I'm almost sure I pronounced that correctly. Brett is a special operations intelligence analyst. At least that's the title we have to tell you. If you want to know more about exactly what that means, you're going to have to read the book. But in a nutshell, Brett is pretty much the world's leading expert in drone warfare. For nearly a decade, Brett was at the center of America's new warfare, which was using UAVs, or drones, to take down the world's deadliest terrorists across the globe. He was just one of an elite handful in the entire military with the authority to select targets and issue death orders. And what he talks about on this show and in his new book is a never before told account of what the new way of war is, what we do with these drones. And you might be surprised that their main function is not to kill people. And we talk about that pretty early on in our interview. Also, I really highly recommend his brand new book. It's called Drone Warrior, an elite soldier's inside account of the hunt for America's most dangerous enemies. This is one of those books I flew through in a weekend because it was just a page-turner. I, I don't know, it's like I said, it was fresh, it was exciting, it was quick, it was it was informative, and it opened my eyes to really what war looks like in the 21st century. It's also fun to hear things that have never been told before, to go behind doors that have never been opened, and to feel like you're on the cutting edge. And also, this book, Drone Warrior, was co-written with journalist Christopher Stewart, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning Wall Street Journal reporter. Gonna hand this episode over to Brett Listen, I think this is one of those ones that not only you will like, but your friends will like and your family on those car rides when you're heading to the beach, when you're in the airplane. So tell them about it. Just a simple, hey, do you guys listen to podcasts? You might want to check this one out. That's it. Helps us out. And it's a lot of fun to grow the show. So with that in mind, you can find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss out on anything. And without further ado... Let's get into this amazing story, this firsthand account of the new drone war, as we hear from Brett Velikovich on his new book, Drone Warrior. Enjoy. Well, Brett, first, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be on the show. And of course, thank you so much for your service.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: You wrote this amazing book, Drone Warrior, just the the title alone, I mean, talking about drones, something that every American and most people in the world are familiar with and how they've revolutionized how we fight, how we live. And I, I'm excited to get into that. But really, I've never even thought about what somebody goes through to become this quote unquote drone warrior and things. So I'd love to learn a little bit about, you know, how you got into the military And then moved on to become this special ops analyst and eventually into drones. So if you could kind of give us a little history, I think that'd be awesome.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I joined the military shortly after 9-11. I was a freshman in college in Texas, you know, ready to make my mark on the world. And I really wasn't sure at the time before I joined the Army um, what what I was going to do with my life. And September 11th happened and it just upended. Obviously, a lot of people, uh, you know, thoughts on the, on the world and world affairs. And for me, it was almost this wake up call of like, you know, what am I doing? You know, what, what, what can I, what can I, how can I give back? You know, how can I help a cause that's bigger than myself? And so that's what uh, led me to join the U S army. And at the time, you know, I wasn't the tough guy, you know, kicking down doors and getting in fights and and all that stuff. And so for me, I was more of like, you know, somebody that, that I felt would best serve the military by joining the intelligence corps and so i joined as an intelligence analyst and you know i wanted to just really get a good idea and understanding for how um, you know the us military and uh, you know all these different things work and then how i could i could assist so what um what's interesting is right when i got in you know this is the beginning of, of two wars that, that were occurring and so right after intel school I was shipped off uh, almost immediately to support um, some of the special forces guys in the field, and the um, you know this this I'll never forget you know my first time and we talk about it in the book quite a bit but the first time I I, I found a drone was uh, one of the the guys on the ground had had this portable drone it was called a, a Raven, and what it is is it uh, you know it's man portable maybe I don't know six or seven feet long. And it really was meant to just give soldiers an idea of exactly uh, what, you know, what was on the horizon. And I just remember being so fascinated by this that um, you know, it was the first real drone I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. And over the course of you know, the years that I started going on more and more deployments, um, we started just seeing this incredible proliferation of these drones because of how much they helped soldiers on the battlefield and um eventually you know as i went on more and more deployments i started working on uh more within a more elite kind of special operations task forces and they had access to more and more more drone technology including you know predators and reapers and all these fancy sophisticated u.s government technology that was really designed uh, in the end to help us go after uh, leaders in these terrorist organizations and so that's kind of how it got started and, and you know the, You know, when you when you look at drone war, you might get this misconception right away that I was the drone pilot or I was the guy, you know, operating physically operating the drone. And that's not the case. There's a lot of uh, moving pieces to how drones work. And there's thousands of people that are involved in uh, deploying them and getting, you know, live streaming the videos and, and creating all the technology. My job was to be actually in the field. Uh, analyzing all the different information that I had at my fingertips and then use drones as that weapon uh, in the end to help one find uh, targets. uh, And then also, if if necessary, strike them.
1: There's so much there I want to get into. But one thing, as soon as you mentioned it, it gave me chills. If you were a freshman in college, that makes you about 33.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, Because I was a freshman in college when it happened as well. And it just, as soon as you said that, it like, I had vivid flashbacks of exactly where I was, exactly how I found out. In fact, and many of the listeners might not even know this, John, who I built the podcast with, still produces it. He was my college roommate. He woke me up and said, cause we were, we were uh, in the same dorm room. He said, you got to watch this on TV. So not only did it bring that back, but it also made me think, man, I like, I feel that I'm a patriot, but. I didn't go join the army, and now you made me feel like shit about it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that—that that wasn't my intent. Look, you know, I, no, just... I left. What I left was uh, a group of just incredible friends, and we all had different paths. In mm-hmm. my path, you know, I don't know what it was, but I just said I wanted—I want to join the army. And and the rest of my friends, they—they they didn't do that, and they're very successful. And I even talk about kind of this whole different path uh, that I went on. And, and I kind of go back in the book uh, to, to see how my friends are doing along the way and to each their own. I mean, you know, for me, it was it, it was just something that that I really wanted to do. And I hadn't planned on it being uh, this eight year, you know, uh, adventure. I only really wanted to join for three or four years and, and kind of be done with it. But I just I had such a, a great time. And, and I knew, you know, I've had this sense of purpose over there that it was just a, a great experience um, for me.
1: Well, let's talk about, as you just mentioned, the sense of purpose, because I have a few friends who, some actually one, uh, who just got back from another deployment, and I know in talking with him that sometimes that sense of purpose when you return is all of a sudden gone. And so I know this is something you talk about at the end of the book, and we're kind of skipping ahead, but since we're there, what is it like so that we have a sense as you know civilians Of what's going on with our soldiers, sometimes maybe not in all cases, but upon returning and what we might be aware of, what what does that feel like?
2: Sure, and and obviously every military member has has their own experiences, so I can only tell you, you know, from my personal perspective. But I, you know, the work that we were doing, it was nonstop, it was very um, high stress, it was action packed, it was. Uh, you know, rarely sleeping uh, in in this almost feeling of, uh, you know, you have the weight of the world on your shoulders, that America's counting on you to go over there and do a job. And it's about something bigger than yourself. It's about saving Americans and others around you. And after a while that, you know, mentally for me, um, that's a pretty heavy burden, especially for someone that was young you know going into it and a lot of soldiers you know, go into it very young I mean I, I spent my 21st birthday in Afghanistan you know uh, drinking you know non-alcoholic beers in celebration <laughs> and, and so uh, you know when my friends back home were' all going out and, and having to uh, you know going out to bars and things like that and and so for me you know my mindset was completely flipped around into this you know I'm although'm I'm, I'm, I'm uh, one person, I also have this, this uh, responsibility to um, you know, keep America's best interest at heart and, and, and do what the government asked me to. And when you get out of that and you leave, you leave that environment, and especially the environment where all I know is war, I mean, that's, that's all I knew. I didn't have this peacetime uh, you know, situation between wars. I mean, I was going from one to the next. And so when you get out and you leave you know, part of you wants to be done with it because you almost don't want to feel that heavy burden. But then you start to realize like, wow, I mean, you know, you think about what we did and and the lives we saved and the adventures we had. And, and you start to, you get into the real world and you, you're almost lost, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I talk about that feeling in the book. It's not this feeling of, you know, uh, almost what people might describe as this, uh, PTSD and and you know some people it's a that's a horrible horrible thing for me it was more this feeling of you know what am I going to do that's better than this and I'm still relatively young you know when I got out I think I was 26 or 27, 27 and I still could could have a whole nother career and mentally I was just uh, you know uh, you know psychologically drained because you know for the last eight years I've been fighting fighting war. And now I'm kind of in the civilian life. Um, and it took a while to get used to that. I mean, my wife definitely helped out with that transition because she wasn't, she wasn't there with me in the, in the military. So luckily she didn't have to go through that. And so it was easier to help, to help with that. But I, I think the support network one is, is incredibly important for soldiers returning home. And, um, but no, there is definitely this mental, uh, uh toll that comes from, you know, this, this environment that, that soldiers live in overseas. Absolutely.
1: On that note, what skills have you learned along the way that have helped you deal with some of the mental stressors you, you were experiencing? And, you know, cause I'm wondering for all of us, I mean, of course we don't face life and death situations and actually it's one of those things that sometimes people will say, if you're stressed out, they'll say, well, it's not like it's life and death. Right. And yours actually was. So For somebody in that experience, what training do you get? What skills might you be able to pass along to people listening that helped you cope before, during, and after?
2: Well, the military does a great job of creating uh, these programs, and there's always room for improvement, of of course. But they, they do a great job of creating these kind of family support networks, and they have programs for soldiers that are returning home to kind of reintegrate. So part of part of that is designed, so um, it, it's 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 designed to kind of help you mentally uh, uh, I- extract yourself from that environment. Um, but there's always always more that can be done. But from a training standpoint, um, you know, our our mindset was very much um, you know you can sleep when you're dead type of mentality, and there really wasn't much disconnecting. I mean, when you think about when I came back from these deployments, uh, I would be 50, 60 pounds lighter. My face would be ghostly white. You know, they were calling me Casper. My family didn't recognize me. Uh, and, and the guys that are doing this work that are hunting down America's enemies, they feel the same way. And it's almost, it's, you almost kind of forget about this. Uh, you, you know, you're there to do a job. You're not there to, uh, decide, you know, What's right or wrong? You're not there to to decide, um, you know, strategic strategically what the U.S. should be doing. You're you're there to, to go after these these networks. And so, in terms of like just learning that, you almost have to just uh, take your mindset away from this idea that um, uh, that you're going to be okay after all of this. Uh, it doesn't matter. You you know, you're there to do a job.
1: Wow, that's uh, that makes sense, but it's also eye opening. I want to get back to now where it started and what you mentioned. A lot of people don't realize that you were actually on the ground. And that was something that even I, going into the book, didn't wasn't aware of. I assumed from the very limited knowledge I have that you were in some office in, I believe, um, Vegas or Nevada somewhere, which is, I think, where they fly a lot of these out of. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But then you very quickly start talking about the box. So if you'd be willing, tell us a little bit about what it was like where you actually were doing your job and collecting and all this information and kind of, you know, uh, handling the drones or at least telling people how to handle them.
2: Sure. So a lot of the, a lot of, and you're right, a lot of the drone pilots and what we call the sensor operators that are there to control the cameras, they are out of locations in the U S and, um, working out of there. But then, um, uh, there are guys like me that are actually deployed closer to the fight and the box is, 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 you know don't get me wrong i'm i'm not the guy that was running through the hail of bullets I, i'm not the navy seal guy kicking down the doors and i mean those and getting shot at you know th- those guys are superhuman i mean just incredible incredible people and my job was kind of in between that so i would be out there with them in the field sitting behind computers uh, sitting behind tv screens where all these different drone feeds Uh, that uh, these pilots were flying over our targets would be piped into the box. And so when you think about the box, think of like walking into a Best Buy and seeing all these TVs all along the the wall. I mean, that's really what it looked like. It was a makeshift desk, plywood tables, and all the TVs basically had a drone video feed that was um, live streaming uh, video of a target that we were following. So maybe it was a car, maybe it was a person, maybe we were just circling a house. We're trying to basically. My job was to kind of collect information and basically say this is the guy we need to capture, and then I would hand that off to the um, people that you know, the, the the tough side of the house that's there to go and and get these guys and and get you know uh, uh, rescue them and, and make everyone safe. And what what I think will be surprising uh, to a lot of people when they read the book is actually how uh, little we use the drones to strike. And I think when people of a, think of a drone they think, oh you know you're just launching missiles all the time with it And the reality is is like 99% of the time we're actually capturing uh, our, our targets because terrorists are worth more to us alive than they are dead because they can pro- provide additional information and vital data that we can use to then go get to the next one. And so it could be you know it'll be surprising to kind of see this different side of things uh, when, when people pick up a copy.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Casper Mattress. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for a hundred nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Casper offers free shipping and returns to U.S. and Canada, and with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it's quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. As a listener to Smart People Podcast, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com smart and using offer code smart that's www.casper.com slash smart and offer code smart terms and conditions apply and now back to the episode that was something
1: i wanted to discuss with you because that was another thing that was surprising to me i just assumed again why not you find them you don't have to put anyone in harm's way let's drop a missile on them And, you know, call it a day. Now, that sounds cruel and crude, and I don't mean it like that, but just in the sense that that's what I thought drones were for. But in fact, it's very much about gathering information and uh, watching. And so what is the mindset going into it? Given that you had all of this information, what are you looking for? And what do you believe the greatest value of drones are?
2: That's a great question. The the way the way I think about it is I, I look back to the history of how we've fought wars for generations. We've been killing the enemy, we've been fighting wars, and generally, you know, you really the, the, the soldiers and the infantry guys that are going out there to to fight on the battlefield, they they don't necessarily know much about their enemy. Okay. They just know that those guys are coming to kill them, and if they don't get them first, then then they're gonna they're gonna lose. And what drones bring us is never before have we had this capability to know so much about our enemy. Okay. Never before have we had this ability to understand, uh, what these guys were going into, uh, the infantry guys when they're, um, you know, doing a route patrol or they're about to go conduct a raid on a house. And the, that's an incredible thing. And, and I don't, it's going to, it's changed the way war's, Will be fought for generations, and now when you when you see operations taking place against uh, you know ISIS or or na- you know name the terrorist group that the U.S. government's going after, there's generally a drone that's that's either overhead before, during, and after to help out uh, the guys on the ground to help save lives, and so that's um, that's an incredible thing to have, and it's it almost it makes soldiers feel safer knowing that um there's air support being provided to them and so in the end when it comes down to it you know the drone is really they're used to provide uh intelligence information that that maybe we're looking for to fill a missing uh piece of the puzzle so maybe maybe i know that uh terrorist x we're going after uh is known to frequent this particular restaurant on, on, on this particular corner but i don't know when he's when he's there you know, uh, I have no idea when he shows up. I just know that he likes this one restaurant. So what we do is we park that drone over top of that restaurant for for days, sometimes or hours, and we sit there and we we just watch and we wait and we wait until we see something that um, basically confirms the information that we had at our fingertips. And then once we, you know, find that guy uh, based on the information, now we're following him around and we're we're studying him and and there's different decisions and sometimes you might have two or three drones stacked on top of each other watching different angles or watching different targets but really what it is is it's it's giving us this information so that collectively our group can make these decisions on what to do next do we go that same night capture the capture the guy you know maybe he's getting ready to you know fill a whole truck full of explosives and drive it into a military base or maybe he's going to you know kill innocent you know, women and children, you know, and and we have to get, we have to get to him quick or do we sit there and watch him for the next two weeks and let him lead us to all his friends that are also doing the same thing. And so you're making these very uh, quick calls. Uh, and it's a, it's just an interesting process that takes place very quickly among all the guys that are doing this.
1: You know, you mentioned you're making these quick calls and they are they have extreme significance, but I can imagine in that same time, there is so much downtime. And by downtime, I don't mean you get to just go hang out and play ping pong. I mean, you're watching a screen with nothing really interesting happening. How do you balance the hours, days of monitoring nothing, and then the quick must be made in a minute decision? How do you balance that?
2: Well, for us, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, I'm not just sitting there staring at it at, at one screen. It, think of like multitasking at the doctorate level. Okay. Uh. <laughs> so I might have a drone that's just maybe a guy went to sleep. He went to back to his house and the, and I know he's going to be in there, but we're getting so much information, data, I- intelligence reports, um, uh, you know, thing, other tools that we're doing. So we're, our mind is moving like in overdrive constantly. So, there really is no downtime. I mean, when when you're not watching the screen, you're basically trying to find the next guy. You're trying to figure out, OK, once that, you know, this guy's pretty much done now, who's the next one we need to go to? And so, uh, you know, we, there were literally guys in, in the in these the organizations I was a part of that would have beds built next to their computers so that they didn't have to worry about going back to the room to get sleep because that was too far to walk because they didn't want to miss something or miss some report coming in that might help them fill a missing piece. You know, we would have the few times we did sleep, we would have uh, the live drone video feed piped into our room. So we'd go from, you know, CBS news to the live drone feed, uh, falling asleep to these guys and watching them. And you become obsessed with that. You become Mm -hmm. obsessed with not missing anything because you know, if You know, if you're if your team, you have this feeling that if your team doesn't find this guy you're going after and soon that he lives another day to to cause, uh, you know, innocent lives to be lost. And so there really is not many times when you're you're, you know, in at least in my position where there is this downtime, it's more just like, okay, what's next? All right, that's fine. He's just sitting there you know, doing his thing. He's having a cup of coffee. Who are you looking at on this on this drone feed? You know, and so it's this constant process of like hunting. This just struck
1: me, but I know that I noticed the effects when I moved from one computer screen to two. Like it's noticeable, right? I now right. have shorter attention span. I now have 10 tabs open <laughs> or 20 tabs open instead of three. Right. I write six emails at a time, but don't finish any of them. You right. must, must deal with that. Are you continuing to deal with that? Is that something that is just part of you now where you can't focus on one task sustained?
2: Oh God. I mean, you have no idea. It's like, (laughs) it's like, you know, we have four, four computer screens up. We're analyzing different things. And then we got the drone feeds up and then we got people talking to us, calling us, you know, commanders asking us what's next. we got so many things going on that, uh, you know, know, it it is really (laughs) It is really that like video game generation that yeah. is like best suited to, to do a lot of this work because you're so used to just like switching from one thing to the next to one computer screen to the next. And, and, uh, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a crazy environment, but, um, it's exactly, you know, kind of like you described where you're just, you know, you, you almost can't, you can't rest because you rest, you rest for a second and you feel like, you know, you're not doing something.
1: Man, the effects that must take, I, I can't even imagine Um, I want to ask you, I want to get a little specific and and give people a view of the book. So the first question I had for you was, do you have a mission that stands out to you that you're most proud of?
2: Well, I mean, collectively, I think I'm proud of just a lot of the leaders that we ended up putting in prisons um, over the years. And a lot of these guys would have been the same folks that were you know, basically leading ISIS now. And so collectively, I'm very proud of that. But certain mission, one mission that I'm particularly proud of is um, helping rescue this girl who had been kidnapped. And one of the things we talk about a lot is this, you know, there's only so many of our teams that exist and so many drones that exist. And so when we are hunting guys, we're going after the worst of the worst, okay? We're not going after some guy that, Stole a pack of cigarettes or something like that. Or uh, even, we're really not even going after the guys that, you know, put an IED in the road. We're going after the people that, that you know, plan these things. We're going after the people that they're the, they're the minds behind it. They're the leaders that are controlling it because they're the most important. And so, in doing that, there's a lot of, I mean, there, there was no shortage of terrorists for us to go after. Let me put it that way. In um, guys that were trying to kill Americans trying to hurt hurt people and so but our job is to go after the worst of the worst And you can imagine you know these people have killed tens of thousands of either Iraqi civilians or or you know You name it and those are the ones we're trying to find and so um, But every so often, you know um, you know you get this feeling of like You want to help somebody and and anyway, you you know that was what we signed up for to help people and so One of the missions we talk about is this Iraqi woman who's kidnapped. Uh, She was married to a a doctor uh, in in the country, and the doctor is a very, very well-known doctor who was connected to an Iraqi general who was well-known. you know, friend of a friend type of thing. A doctor came to him, the general and said, you know, I I don't know what to do. My, my wife's been kidnapped by Al Qaeda in Iraq. They're holding her hostage. They're texting me photos of basically them beating her and, and, and chaining her up to the bed and and doing who knows what. And, and he just was, he was helpless. He was helpless. And he was like, can you help me? You know, he asked these general, can you help me? And eventually that, um, you know, that made its way down to our level of, you know, Hey, if you've got time, can you do this? And uh, they handed me the photo of this woman. And you know, the, my first thought process was like, no, we don't have time. Like we've got more important things. Like there's a ton of, there's a ton of people that are being kidnapped all day long and killed all day long. Like right. people are dying every day. We, where our job is to go after these bigger guys. And that that tells you the mindset that I was in where I was almost like emotionally disconnected to, to where, uh, it's, it's, it, it it's sad, but it's almost like, you know, who cares about that? But then I just started thinking about it more and I'm like, what am I doing? What am I thinking? Like, what if that was me? What if that was my wife? What was, what if that was my mother? You know, I had the power to do something about it and I had the power um, with the rest of my team to do something about it very quickly. And I knew that. And so I remember just kind of, you know, waking up, you know, from my bed and just saying like, we're going to stop everything we're doing and we're going to help, we're going to help this guy. And so we basically pulled the drones off of the other targets that we were following. And we said, we're going to find this girl. And, um, that same night we found her, um, and you know, uh, through a lot of the tools that we have to hunt. And we found her in a house surrounded by, you know, Al Qaeda and Iraq guys. And we knew that she was inside, definitely inside the house and then the guy, the the guys on the ground, the assault force went in, you know, kicked down the door, arrested the the guys and found her chained to the bed and, and, and rescued her. And, and it was, it was one of those like good feelings of like, you know, you can, you know, even though there's this bigger purpose to it all, um, even saving one life is like kind of the point of it. And, um, you know, knowing kind of how good the people are around me at, at doing this, I knew that. Uh, it was, it was one of those good news stories that, that, that we needed.
1: Yeah. It's like the win, you know, that's, that's the win, the very tangible immediate results win, as opposed to, I'm sure many that could seem vague at times. And so I can right. see how that's a, a huge, just emo- emotional boost as well as let's be, I mean, you know, amazing for the family and for the people involved and then has a negative impact, which is one of the biggest things I think from an outsider's perspective about drones is is the uh, negative impact, or I guess that's the wrong way to put it, the the psychological impact it has on the enemy, knowing
2: that we can find you anywhere. Right. No, you're 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 exactly right, and and especially about about the win. You know, it's really hard to quantify um, how many lives are saved in the process of of what what we were doing, and guys are still doing today. But when you get that. That, that that's a tangible thing that you can basically quantify is that we saved this girl and you don't often see that. Um, and, and so that, that's important. But on the other hand, you know, this, this impact, I mean, on the enemy that they know we're hunting they hunt, they know that we've got these things up in the air flying around and we, cr- we created this paranoia in them, which I think is a good thing. Um, it can be a bad thing at times because, They're almost, uh, oftentimes, they can be overly paranoid. I think we want them to be. Um, But then you get guys that, uh, I I remember, you know, there were people that were literally, you know, these guys we would find, we would get reports that these guys were buying um, cars with sunroofs because they had to have a car with a sunroof because they had to be able to look up and see if a drone was following them. And uh, we we would get these guys so paranoid because they just had no idea how we were getting to them. They had no idea why their friend, got captured the night before they had no idea why we were able to discover, you know, explosives in in one of the houses that they had planned to, to blow up before they were able to. And that, that paranoia is, is really a, a good thing um, that, that drones bring because it makes uh, it makes the enemy um, uh, be, it, it makes it so, you know, one, they make more mistakes and two, it, it, it it's one of those things where, it's going to restrict their movement and it's going to, res- it's going to scare them into thinking that they can just freely go wherever they want. And, and, over the long term, that's, that's a good thing because then they don't have as much time to, you know, plan these operations and meet with the people that they have to, to, to conduct these attacks. Absolutely.
1: You mentioned in that mission, when you captured the woman, the tools to hunt that you have and, and essentially being able to have then boots on the ground, go in and rescue her. And I'm wondering how much detail you can provide on how you actually find someone. So in that instance, I'm assuming you're given this very large geographical area. How do you even begin? It seems like an incredibly daunting task to me. And so how does it start for whatever you can tell us?
2: Yeah. So in And obviously we went to great lengths to ensure that the U S government was comfortable, um, with what we were talking about. And so, you know, the absolute limit of what the government authorized me to say is in this book. Um, and so obviously, you know, we're not allowed to disclose a lot of, a lot of the the things that we have, but what I can say is that we are constantly taking some of the smallest pieces of information, um, and putting together this, this, puzzle piece. And so we start, you're right, we start with this geographic area. We generally know where, um, uh, where the kidnapping took place in, in the time frame, And it's like being a detective, right? But at this doctorate level, we're, we're, we're put, we're bringing all these pieces together and then whatever we're missing, whether that be, you know, maybe we know the neighborhood, we don't know the house, or maybe we, we know um, the, uh, the group that took him, but we don't know the individuals within that group that, that, that kidnapped him. And we're just like refining this information as, as fast as possible because we know that there's, there's this timeline involved. And, um, you know, people want to learn kind of how we go about doing it and, and how we go about it, with, you know, up to the limits of what the U.S. government allowed me to talk about. They can, they can see that in this book.
0: This week's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new, delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. HelloFresh employs two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. HelloFresh is so convenient, they deliver food to your doorstep in recyclable insulated boxes for free. HelloFresh is now offering light summer meals and has just introduced breakfast options. HelloFresh has been an absolute life changer. I used to think I didn't have time to cook, but now, with the food delivered to my house, the recipes included in the box, HelloFresh has made it so easy and so delicious. Both Chris and I have tried meals from HelloFresh, and it is absolutely amazing. We highly recommend it. For $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter SPP30 when you subscribe. Again, head over to HelloFresh.com and enter SPP30 when you subscribe. HelloFresh, delicious ingredients you'll love to eat, simple recipes you'll live to cook. Get cooking. And now back to the episode.
1: It is really an incredible idea, especially coming from that kind of video game um, background, you know, that, that, as you called it, the video game generation. Just that playing out in real life, which has consequences, obviously that far surpass what many of us can comprehend. You know, there's another story that stuck out to me, and I highlight these stories really to show the obviously the incredible accomplishments and things that you and your team and those out there now have done, but also that just how fascinating the book is. And I'd like to get your take while we have you on. The mission to find the girls that were kidnapped by Boko Haram, because I know that was something that was very well publicized. I mean, if you watch the news, I remember it vividly. And then, kind of understanding your story about how you found them, but then actually how it went wrong is is um, is an interesting tale. Would you tell us about that?
2: Definitely a uh, team, you know, effort. Like, what happened was I was out of the military and I was doing some contracting work. And I just so happened to be, it was like right place at right, you know, right time. And, uh, I remember waking up to CNN, you know, talking about these girls that had been kidnapped and, um, and, uh, miss, you know, the first lady was, was wanting to help out and all these people wanted to come together and see how we could support this. And, you know, uh, so I was asked to come and help, um, the, this small group that was basically given a, a drone, uh, to go and support the Nigerians. And, you know, Nigeria is not a place where we've got, you know, us troops running around. And so it limits, it limits people on what can actually be done in there. But, you know, a drone was provided to, to provide that support. And very quickly we, you know, it was almost like a flashback to the, to the box. You know, I, I helped out, I helped this, this team basically, um, you know, pull together the information that we needed to kind of start this hunt and start this hunt to find where these girls were. And within, I think 48 hours of having a drone up, we, we believe we found, um, a group of them, um, being held, uh, under this tree, uh, in Nigeria and in Nigeria, they have like, they, like people live under trees. Like, I mean, they are massive, massive trees. And so you, you have like, like hundreds of people like living under these things. If that makes sense. So it's almost like the, the we call it the tree of life, hmm. you know, uh, if, if you think about, uh, that and the, and this really kind of goes to the point that if you don't have, you know, soldiers on the ground or you don't have a strike capability, um, or authorization to, you know, finish or to go after these targets, really, um, you're kind of just gathering information for the sake of doing it. And in this case, the information was provided to Ni- the Nigerians. You know, photos basically saying, hey, we believe that these are the girls and they're right here and right now. What are you going to do about it? And they were basically like, nothing. We can't do anything about it. And it, it's frustrating because you're staring that you're staring at them and you know um, that uh, they must be so scared and, and what you can't even imagine what they're going through. And you want so badly to do something about it. But um, the the country doesn't have the capability to do anything because, you know, they're the girls are deep in Boko Haram territory. And, um, you know, if it was the U.S. government, they would have gone in and conducted a rescue operation and, and they would have done everything they could to save their lives. But now we're dealing with another country and, and we don't you know, we can't tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, it's. It was frustrating, uh, especially for the guys that were involved um, that were spending, you know, like not sleeping, basically, you know, trying to help uh, this mission.
1: And that's one of those things that just blows my mind that because I'm so used to being in America, right? We can go anywhere. We can do anything if we have to. I'm not saying it out of anything other than if it's necessity. But and then in this case. You did it, right? You did something that we were all, I mean, watching on TV, like, where are they? What's happening? And then it was a government that is impotent in that environment due to the strength of Boko Haram. That's just crazy.
2: Yeah, it's wild. And it, and it really, I mean, we, ha- we have the best military in the world. And you you almost, when you go to some of these other like countries, these third world countries, you tend to, you hope that they kind of operate at the same level of efficiency as our men and women do. And, um, but it's easy to get frustrated when, um, they tell you to just kind of sit back and wait. And that that's the case in a lot of these, these militaries, um, that aren't, that don't have the, the budgets that don't have the, the same mindset, um, that America has to kind of quickly get after it. And you run into, um, uh, these, these issues. And that's not to say that like, we're right over over them I mean they've been fighting wars too and they have their own process for going through it but sure. for us when we're moving at the speed of war right and' we're, we're trying to get this job done as fast as fast as possible it's very frustrating when um, you know other countries kind of don't don't have that similar mindset and again I don't you know so
1: yeah absolutely you know there's one other thing that jumped out to me and it was uh, this is kind of going back uh, to the beginning but when you joined, it was the um, the training you had to go through, and some of the uh, you know interrogation training and all that. Were you prepared for what you would endure to become who you had to be at war, and that training?
2: I think so. Um, for 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 me, it was really you know I, I was the thinker, I was the the analyst, right? So it wasn't. Again, it's not my job to to go out and, and pull the trigger. I'm I'm the guy telling the guys pulling the trigger. You know where the target is uh, for that. I was there. I was there to unleash them, and so the training I got was more of like last resort type situation. Like if I had to, you know, if I had gotten captured or uh, I had gotten into a firefight, like something has gone terribly wrong because we have some of the best uh, uh, shooters in the world, you know, around me, and um, you know if it's gotten to that level where I'm sitting there. You know, firing my assault rifle at somebody, like, like it has hit the fan. Right. All right? right so, right. the training I went through, though, was more of like, it helped me f- have the confidence um, to be able to go out into these more risky environments. You know, I still, I still like remember a lot of that training. I was just in Somalia uh, last month and, and I was then downtown Mogadishu, one of the most dangerous cities in the world. And I feel completely comfortable there because I, I'm used to kind of those environments. And I think the training I received, um, helps give me that confidence. But, uh, you know, there's really no, tra- no, not enough training in the world that can necessarily prepare you for, um, you know, if you actually were to be captured, um, by a, by a government or by a, by a terrorist group. And I, I think, um, if you just re- even reading some of the stories of people that that's happened to, you're like, Oh my God, like, yeah. I, I don't know if I am prepared for that.
1: Right. You know, one question that that jumped out to me and kind of continually does as it relates to military progress and new innovations is what happens when everyone has drones?
2: Well, it's it's dangerous. I mean, I think it's like what happens when everyone has nukes. Exactly. Right. right. You're giving people this this uh, capability to um, move to different boundaries. You know, you're not restricted to your kind of area that um, that you're operating in, and especially what what's concerned me as of late, and the in the U.S. military still has they still have hands down the best drone capability that exists. They're constantly spending money on the tools to make the drones safer, more precise, fly longer, fly higher, and be quieter when they're up in the air, and um, we we have the best drone capability of any country currently. But others are catching up. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're stealing the technology or they're, they're, um, you know, remanufacturing it. Um, but what scares me is more of these non-state actors, uh, that can get their hands on more of the commercial side of drones. And now you're given, uh, basically a terrorist group that can get their hands on a you know, drone for a thousand dollars that you know, the similar, you know, so the type of drones that I wish I had when I was in the military a while back. Mm. And that to me going forward um, is something that I don't know if we have the best handle on yet, but I know that people are working towards being able to do something about it. If, if a, uh, a terrorist group was to look at weaponizing these more commercial drones.
1: Yeah, I guess that's the the race of war, right? The race of innovation and trying to stay ahead of what we create. I mean, I don't know the answer. That's why I, I want to get your take on it. Brett, the last thing I, I want to ask you is, you know, you came home and I'm sure you you had this sense of mission and you had these skills and you parlayed that into, and, and I don't know much about this aspect, but uh, utilizing UAVs to help wildlife conservation. Could you tell us a little bit about that, how that came to be and what you're currently doing with that?
2: Yeah, sure. So for me, you know, there were a few years when I was out of the military that again, I was kind of lost and looking to to, you know, find that purpose again. And I was approached by um, this venture capital firm that said, hey, we, we fund projects out in uh, places like Africa that look at technology solutions to um, solve some of these um, these social issues or uh, some of these problems like you know, mobile payments and things like that. And they said, you know, one of their one of their friends was um, a very well known wildlife con- uh, conservationist in Kenya, and her her conservation was being just devastated by by poachers and uh, this these rhinos and these elephants that were normally just you know you you know you could see as far as the eye could uh, the eye could see um, are not, were now scared. And, you know, she had just flown out like her last rhino to go to a zoo because she was worried it was going to be killed. And, and, um, and so the, these guys kind of approached me and said, Hey, you know, we heard that, um, you know, from a friend of a friend that, that you're one of the, you know, leading experts on drones. Do you think something could be done here? And I said, well, you know, I'll take a look and let's go out there and see. And, when I went out there to these conservations, I, it just was mind blowing. One, how one, how just beautiful it is out there. And two, how um, we got to do something to to protect these these animals, because, um, you know, people aren't going out there, to, you know, tourists aren't going out there to stare at grass all day. And uh, these are these are some of the foundations of our, our civilization out there. Uh, so we created this project called the African eye and the whole idea was to take some of the same government drones that we had, I had used in the military because, you know, you really need, need that type of stuff and help augment the anti-poaching teams that are already out there in the field, um, that have been there for a while and, and give them the technology solutions. And when you look at poaching, it really is kind of like an insurgency, but it's, it's an insurgency at a rudimentary level. These guys aren't Al Qaeda trained right. people that- know we're hunting them down i mean these are literally guys in the bush that are looking across the horizon they're using spears and bow and arrows and poison tip darts you know to to kill elephants and so it's it's rudimentary rudimentary enough to me to where it's like this is a problem we can help fix i think pretty quickly if we can find uh, be on the offense which is what drones do um if we can find these guys before they're able to kill these animals like then more power more power to us and i think we can really kind of change that that death rate and so my whole like time now like all i do is dedicate my time to figuring out ways i can use drones to create a positive impact on humanity and so i donate drones i go and and share my expertise with people because i want i want to share this knowledge i have with others that can can benefit from it and so for me these humanitarian projects that exist um, are, are some of the most worthy causes for, for drone technology. So I'm always looking for more causes to support. And, um, you know, even just this week, just doing a lot of media, we've been getting some emails from folks that are already saying, you know, Hey, you think you can help out us here? And oh, wow. I love it. You know, I love to see that. And I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can to help these guys out.
1: Well, what a great use of the technology, Brett, I, I really appreciate your time. The book, again, is Drone Warrior, an Elite Soldier's Inside Account of the Hunt for America's Most Dangerous Enemies. I read it. It's a fantastic read. Thanks for putting it out in the world and thanks for your service. Um, I'd like to give you a moment to, to tell our listeners who are interested about this, you, what you're doing, uh, maybe if you're on social, anywhere we can find you.
2: Sure. The the best place if you're if you're looking to buy the book, just go on Amazon um, right now and, and you can purchase Drone Warrior. It's up there. Or, you know, if you're near Barnes and Nobles, it's out it's out front uh, when you walk in. Uh, but if you want to, you know, reach out to me personally or see some of the things that we're doing, you can actually go to Brett and you can learn about some of the projects I'm supporting. You can send me an email uh, or my team an email on potential projects that I can help uh, continue to support. And uh, I'm always looking for new stuff to help out with. Um, and then Twitter, it's the drone warrior on Twitter and it's the drone warrior on Facebook. So look me up and, um, you know, happy to hear from listeners out there.
1: Great. Well, again, Brett, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right. Good luck. All right. Thanks.
0: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Brett Velikovic. His book, Drone Warrior, an elite soldier's inside account of the hunt for America's most dangerous enemies, can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you decide to purchase Brett's book or anything else on Amazon, please make sure you do so through the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com Amazon. It's a free and easy way to support the show as it adds no extra cost to you. When you click the link, You do your Amazon shopping as normal, and we get a nice little kickback from Amazon. It just helps keep the lights on here at Smart People Podcast. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. To stay up to date on all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter over there. All right, that's it for us this week. We've got some great interviews coming up, so we will see you all next episode.